0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello there, welcome to the minefields. try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life on this show. Waleed Ali is my name, Scott Stevens is my co-host. Hello, Scott. Hey, Waleed, how are you doing? I'm very well, except I will admit to a certain degree of trepidation and confusion uh, mm. about this new COVID variant that, I was going to say, is what we're talking about today. It kind of is what we're talking about. Kind of, uh, it's, yeah. it's kind of at the centre of it. Um, my fear is obvious, or my trepidation is obvious, that, um, I mean, this could be anything, and I don't mm. know what it means. And I know at some point, surely, I'm going to be caught on the wrong side of some border somewhere, and I hope I'm not caught in a hospital somewhere as a result. <laughs> But my other thing, and this is what I wanted your thoughts on, because you strike me as the kind of person who probably has a very fully formed view on this, oh. it is the pronunciation of it. Oh. Because I read a whole article trying to explain to me the various ways of pronouncing it. Yeah. And I got to the end and I thought, well, I'm really no closer than I was at the beginning because it seemed that although the most popular view was Omicron hmm. or Omicron... Mm. Some of the classicists disagreed mm. and thought that you should say omicron mm. because that is closer to what the ancient Greeks would have said. How they deduce this from texts, I don't know. That I mean, this is what they do though. Um, but I'm sure you have a view on it. So I thought I would ask you to clear it up for wow. me.
0: Isn't that sweet? That's actually kind of beautiful. Because I, I I was I was trained in classical Greek. Of course you were. Um, and there are very, very clear ways of signifying uh, in classical Greek where the stress ought to be. So, mm. I mean, technically speaking, it really is omicron. omicron. Um, uh, yes. but, but the most important thing is there are two O's in Greek. There is the short O sound and then there's the long O sound. The long O sound is the Greek letter that ends the alphabet, omega or omega. Yeah. Um, the most important thing is we don't call it Omicron, because that would be saying that, oh, because, sorry, Omicron is, of course, the name of a Greek letter, and it's the name of the Greek letter, which is the short letter O. Yeah. So it is O. Oh, it is O. Oh. Oh. Yeah. The, the pronunciation, the accent is probably in the second syllable. Omicron. Omicron. But it sounds like you're trying to correct somebody. So... To, to my mind, Omicron is probably the, the,
1: the nicest. So what this a- seems to be a modern Greek thing because, yeah. as I was reading through this article, it was only the classicists that were interested in this Omicron business. And even they disagreed about something to do with the pronunciation. I can't remember what it was now. It was Omicron versus Omicron or something like that. But yeah. but, the, but all the modern Greek people... <laughs> I can't believe we're discussing this. this isn't well, weird. no, I think this is a good way to start. All the modern Greek people... Were that Omicron yeah. was just get out of my face with that? They weren't interested in that at all. They, yeah. they had the emphasis on the first syllable. So, I guess yeah. my question is at what point did the Greeks forget how to speak Greek?
0: Oh, this is wonderful. Okay, actually, I actually have an answer to this. Oh, okay, great. But it's not actually about the Greeks lear- uh, forgetting how to speak Greek. Um, well, no, I was being th- incendiary unnecessary. I know, yeah. I, I know. But one of the things, I love that we're discussing this. This is like Christmas early, Willie. Thank <laughs> you. Um, one of the things that differentiated early Greek or classical Greek from a number of the other languages that surrounded it, there is a kind of, I don't know quite how to say this, but there is an economy of length that goes into certain words. So if you use a long vowel in cognate languages to Greek, related to, but different from, if you use a long vowel in one syllable, then you are bound to use two short vowels. It's very rare to find a word that has more than three syllables in ancient languages. Um, You're bound to use two short vowels um, because you can only have a certain amount of time. There's a kind of economy.
1: Yeah. You get one long vowel maximum per word and that's it. And if you've used your long vowel, your quote is done. Or you can
0: use two long vowels, but you can't use two long vowels and a short vowel. If you use a long vowel and there are three syllables, you have to use two short vowels. Um, And then as words grew with more and more prefixes and more and more suffixes, you often find words without any long vowels at all and just a whole lot of short vowels. And then you find it developing into sort of, you know, one long vowel and a whole lot of short vowels as the language decays a little bit over time.
1: Sorry, should we Um, give uh, listeners a moment just to catch up with the notes that they're scribbling? Okay. So, what this
0: means is that, is that Greek, unlike many—classical Greek, unlike many of its cognate languages, had a certain lyricism that was built into it, which, which meant it could withstand, because of the lyricism that was inherent to the language, it could withstand the presence of more long vowels in a particular word. Mm-hmm. And then as that language has developed over time, as the language has sped up and the lyricism has decreased— it means that the, that economy, that distinguished Greek from its other, cog, classical Greek from its other cognate languages, has diminished over time. And so you have a single long vowel and then more and more short vowels, hence Omicron. Which one's the long vowel? Uh, the first one, Omicron. Or, or Sorry, sorry, sorry. The first one is the short. You got me confused now. The first one is the short one. Yeah. And then it should be, normally, it should be the long vowel is in the
1: final syllable. Right. So, omicron. Or omicron. I, I really know Omicron. That. I reckon I know that. Yeah. The other thing I want to tell you, which is pertinent to today's topic, and may, may be a cause of some moral judgment by the end of the show, right. is I just got my booster shot. Oh. Yeah. This is exactly what we're talking about. Hey, are, you, are you upset at me? Uh, I'm not. I was a little bit upset I... at me. I did. Adju- I, I I was in a great deal of consternation over this. I even had arguments with friends where they told me off yeah. Yeah. for being a bit reluctant to get it. I will point out, I was not remotely reluctant on scientific grounds or health grounds or anything. No, like, it was it was purely on ethical grounds as to yep. should I be receiving a booster shot at a at a, at a time like when I'm already double vaxed. Sure, there's some waning. How much I don't really know. It means I probably get COVID at some point, but it doesn't hospitalise me. And there's all these parts of the world that aren't vaccinated. Hmm. What, what are my responsibilities here? Maybe we should just turn this into an Ask Scott sort of program. So I'm just going to ask no. you. Did I do the right thing? Uh, let's, let's revisit at the end of this show. Oh, God, you can't um, leave me. I'm going to spend the whole show nervous about the judgement. No, no, look, I do think... Okay, Let me take one
0: step back. Okay. One of the remarkable things, this is now the end of our second year talking about the COVID-19 pandemic. Yep. And one of the things that struck me from the very beginning is that this pandemic is tailor-made. It's not that it exists for the sake of moral deliberation. Sure. But it's tailor-made for a particular conception of the way that moral deliberation ought to work. And I think it's best to think of it as demanding almost concentric circles of moral deliberation. So let me put it to you this way, Walid: It seems to me that when the pandemic first hits, there's no vaccine at that stage in sight. Mm -hmm. It would be entirely inappropriate to be thinking rigorously about, say, global equity of vaccine distribution or even, even global obligations in the face of a pandemic. At that earliest stage. I disagree with that. Okay. well,
1: And in fact, it was happening.
0: It it was, but it seemed to me that it it was preemptive and it was perhaps even misplaced. Because one of the things that we noticed in the earliest stages is that the more local problem solving and political deliberations got, the more effective and important they were. That's true. So things, things almost got shrunk down to their most individual levels. That might be at the state level, that might be at the local council level, that might be at the local community level. And I think that was, that was appropriate. The, the extent to which we were atomized and isolated. And then the conversations we were having I'm sure you remember this, Walid. The conversation we were having at that very early stage was about how do we bear up? under conditions, morally speaking, as moral agents, under conditions of extreme isolation? How do we care for our neighbors under conditions of social atomization, social distancing? But then as the pandemic progresses, it seems to me that with each level, as the concentric circles move out, there are a new series of moral demands that are impressed upon us. So at at, at some stage, it becomes about vaccine funding and development. At another stage, it becomes about vaccine hesitancy and rollout. At this final stage, it now becomes, I think, pressingly about global equity. Those nations that now enjoy very, very high levels of vaccine distribution, vaccine take-up of vaccinated citizens, uh, do they now have an obligation to forego the promise, even the demand, for a booster program, for a domestic booster campaign, so that, if I can just put this incredibly baldly, so that the rest of the, especially lower, low and lower income world, which has which languished in vaccine distribution and vaccine take-up, so that they can catch up. And I guess my question then is, if that is the most pressing question at this moment, then the salient issues are, is it incumbent upon us to forego a booster a domestic booster campaign in order for the rest of the uh, lower-income nations to to catch up? Is that incumbent upon us? Or is the same logic that led us to this point, namely the relative priority that ought to be accorded to the the citizens of particular nations, yes, does that logic, does that language, does that obligation continue throughout this moment? In other words, if you are languishing in the In a higher income country, if you are languishing, then does that greatly diminish our capacity to help others? Does the language shift? Does the the moral language, the moral obligation shift over time? And how then is the domestic appetite for ongoing safety, security, well-being, how can that be meaningfully addressed, maybe even diminished
1: by democratic nations, especially like ours, coming into an election season? In the way that you put the... Mask on yourself first before you try to help your child on a crashing plane. On an airplane.
0: Exactly right. right. Exactly
1: right. Uh, I think this is brilliantly distilled, and I think the ancient Greeks would be proud of what you've done. But I'm a little concerned with how you've done it because this idea of the pandemic evolving such that it throws questions at us one after the other and then we answer them in their time as they arrive, Mm -hmm. I think is Mm -hmm. partly how you end up in the situation of having to answer this question. Yeah, I think that's right. I think So right. Yeah, I mean if if the global equity of vaccine distribution had been at the forefront of thinking and people had been thinking about that in a really serious way before we even had the vaccines, then maybe I mean probably not in practice. But maybe we don't actually have to answer the, the booster question when it arrives. Hmm. Because the equity of vaccine distribution around the world has has kind of been sorted, right? I think that's unlikely for the same reasons that I think action on climate change is very unlikely um, in a meaningful, concerted, global way, and that is that nation-states have national interests and will pursue them, and the ethical questions we raise here are mostly irrelevant to that enterprise. Can I just add
0: one thing to that, Walid? Yes. It's not just about nation-states have national interests. It's also that governments, even governments that are operating within conditions of, of emergency, still rely upon democratic legitimacy in order to do what it is that they do. Think for a moment about the grief that the Australian federal government has received for, well, in the estimation of some, bungling its early vaccine procurement negotiations. Now, had Australia not muscled its way towards the front of the queue, the domestic democratic backlash, I think, would have been severe. In other words, if there was due consideration on solid moral grounds given very early on in the process for how we can ensure that the top, say, 15, 20 countries in the world that have put the most money into vaccine development and distribution don't get themselves in front of line. But there is a more equal, equitable distribution of, of those vaccines. It seems to me that nations I'm, – I'm just speaking – I mean, I think there's probably a moral way to frame this, but I'm just thinking in terms of pure kind
1: of democratic realpolitik. Yeah. The back, there the, the, no, would no, be hell to pay I know exactly on the part what you're of many... Imagine yeah. what we would have said if the Australian government had come out and said, we are not pushing to the front of the queue because <laughs> other countries need this vaccination more than we do. Hmm. Which hmm. would have been a true statement, by the way, because we were at that yes, time a zero COVID country. And it would have meant that we were taking a risk, that we were playing with fire because we were destined not to be a zero COVID country at some point, but we were nonetheless in a far better situation than the, you know, the altogether more perilous situations of so many countries around the world, which by the way, is probably some of the content of the conversations that finally did occur between Pfizer and the Australian government Mm. when we were trying to obtain it. And depending on who you believe, Pfizer was saying, sorry, but there are all these other countries that needed a lot more, which is one of the reasons that I, I, you know, I I can have an argument about the vaccine rollout forever if you want, and that's not the topic of today's conversation, but it's one of the reasons that I just wonder whether or not, even if we had been incredibly proactive in the way we procured vaccines, it would have made any difference as to what actually turned up at what actual moments. Just, you know, I think... There were so many contingencies that would have gotten in the way because we're talking about a global shortage. Now, the global shortage of the vaccine is relevant, obviously, because that's where questions... I mean, questions of distributive justice with vaccine, vaccination don't really arise where there's no scarcity. Hmm. I mean, they might, but it's hard to imagine a scenario where they do. Really, what you're talking about there is logistical barriers, which are really present, by the way. So not all of the problems that we have with vaccination in Africa, from everything I've been able to glean, not all of those are vaccine supply problems. Some of them are. Some Some of uh, them are also about storage and timely distribution. Yes, which is especially a problem for something like Pfizer, I would have thought. Hmm. Um, Less so for the Oxford-AstraZeneca one. But I think it is fair to say that vaccine distribution was a real problem and still is, as in just supply, and, and still is in significant parts of Africa, not South Africa, which is the country that's raised the alarm over the Omicron variant. Um, mm. But it was in South Africa. And so I've read this sort of debate going back and forth where the argument is, well, the problem in South Africa isn't supply, it's actually demand. They've got a vaccine hesitancy problem that's very large. Interestingly, disproportionately represented in the white population rather than the black population. And I've been trying to figure out why that might be. I don't really know. Yeah, I can... We'll come yeah. back to that. But anyway... Yeah.
0: But then the, the... I'll just say that sorry, I'll just say briefly. will the effect of certain forms of evangelical Christianity,
1: right in uh, South Africa, okay.
0: in South Africa have been on this particular front mm. have been, on the best reading, sort of unhelpful, counterproductive. So similar
1: to what we're seeing in America. Yes, exactly. Okay. That. So if that's the case, I mean, you're only talking about a country that's at 35%, so it's, it's a very significant level of vaccine hesitancy. But anyway, leave that aside. The, the response to that claim that I've read that I do think is persuasive is, yes, but if the supply had been there earlier and we'd hit this barrier earlier, mm. then you might have a world where this variant doesn't emerge. Now, it may well be that the that's variant true. emerged elsewhere anyway. In fact, it looks like that's fairly likely now. Mm. South Africa just spotted it because it's much better at the genomic sequencing and all that sort of stuff. But nonetheless, what we can say, I think, with some degree of confidence is to whatever degree it ultimately contributed to the creation of a new variant that may well evade our vaccines and may well be seriously deadly. We're still waiting to find out about that. There was a problem of vaccine distribution And that problem was largely that wealthy nations bought up far more stock of the vaccine than they were ever going to use at inflated prices Mm. because they could afford to. And as a result, they crowded out both in terms of the markets, like the money that could be spent, but also just in terms of the supply of the vaccine, poorer nations. Mm. I think that was an unethical step to take. Yeah, I can understand the national interest argument and the put your own mask on before your child's mask argument, but I'm not sure that was necessary here. Especially not when you see country after country making pledges to Covax, which is the sort of I don't know the, the UN-backed body that was going to try to distribute vaccines globally in a just way. Yeah, making these pledges and they're not delivering, or making pledges later that actually are fairly paltry and so on. And this is a story that goes over and over and over. I've been confounded in Australia by the fact that we, whatever the practical difference it ended up making, that we had the sovereign capacity to manufacture a vaccine and then decided not to use it because of a concern over blood clots Mm -hmm. and therefore added to the demand for mRNA vaccines that were in critically short supply around the world. So here we were churning out, doses of vaccine that we didn't use, not really distributing them internationally. We did a bit. Although, a although we now have We've started. We're well yeah. behind what Once our pledges we were. And we've mm. shut down our capacity to make it. Mm. Was it ethical in the first place for a country like Australia to rely on Pfizer? So to say this is how we want to vaccinate our population now. In, a, in the context of a global vaccination shortage where we could make more than enough of another world-class vaccine to vaccinate ourselves. Hmm. And I wonder if answering all those questions gets you to the answer on the boosters generally.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Um, I mean, look, just one... I mean, I I think the way that you framed it is perfect. Uh, The one thing that I'll add to it is that part of the problem surrounding COVAX, which is this public-private partnership for sort of global vaccine equity in distribution, part of the problem... Has been that the agreements that were made were voluntary and non-binding. Which, reporting which agreements mechanisms, are you about? Sorry, uh, um, agreements that were made between participating nations and Covax ah, okay, yes. were voluntary and non-binding. There were no, there was no obligation of transparency in reporting. And while there were agreements made publicly with Covax, there were also bilateral agreements that were being made quite separately, and and in contradiction to COVAX agreements with manufacturing, with pharmaceutical companies themselves. So so while there is a degree of kind of public global pressure that is being played up to, at exactly the same time, there's a kind of relentless national interest that's being that's being pursued. And I, uh, I guess I have a little bit more sympathy, Waleed, amid the fog and the haze that surrounded AstraZeneca, for instance, in some of its earlier stages, um, simply not knowing how long vaccines were going to take, what vaccine demands were going to be. I guess if I have a little bit more sympathy towards democratically elected leaders who were doing their very best, especially in a fairly minor player like Australia. Um, I mean, we're not even in the top 17 uh, of nations that have received uh, significant supplies of mRNA vaccines. So... so
1: yeah, but we're a tiny population. I know, I know.
0: So I, I guess I have a little bit more... A little bit more sympathy, but I guess going back to the analogy of the concentric circles, it seems to me that as things have progressed, as the situation in the world moves, it seems to me that the weight that ought to be given to particular demands that are upon us changes quite dramatically, which means that at this stage, even if we were simply thinking in terms of national self-interest, it is against our national interest to continue to allow nations or portions of the world to languish in a condition of high transmission of high circulation the mutation of every new variant sure
1: but isn't the point that it always was
0: uh quite quite possibly but i think that nations can be given a degree of sympathy in not placing their national emphasis on that condition I, on sure
1: that. so i'm sympathetic in the sense that i don't say that the politicians and the health professionals who were making these sorts of judgments are immediately terrible people for doing that. I just I think what confounds me is the questions were obvious yet unaskable. Yeah. Yep. That's fair. It would have made no sense. I mean, imagine if you heard someone on talkback radio or whatever making this like asking the, the health minister a question like this.
0: Yeah, but 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 Waleed, the questions were unaskable because of prevailing condition of widespread democratic fear. Um, yeah, I guess it. You know, but, 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 this is this is where this is where my, my inner Aristotle always comes out. Um, someone who is involved in the process of practical deliberation, practical decision making, has to reckon with conditions as they exist, rather than imposing a particular moral expectation.
1: Yes, on I totally on a political community. I completely agree with that, and hence the, I'm not unsympathetic to to the situation they find themselves in. I guess I, we come full circle, and I say, but part of the creation of those conditions. Was the absence of a serious reckoning with these questions. Yes, earlier. that's true. Um, this is The Mindfield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you may be doing right now, but you can catch the show as a podcast. You can do that anytime you like. That's the great thing about podcasts. So you can go to the ABC Listen app and do it there, or you can follow The Mindfield on your podcast platform of choice, and we'll probably just turn up every week in your feed. <laughs>
0: Um, well, well, Ed and I have been talking ourselves in circles, and at this particular stage, it's usually a guest that comes along and helps us <laughs> to escape the roundabout or the cul-de-sac or however you want to describe it. And have we got a guest for you today. Owen Schaefer is assistant professor in the Center for Biomedical Ethics at the Yong Lu Lin School of Medicine at the National University of Singapore, which I have to say has the most staggeringly impressive vaccination coverage of just about any nation I've seen. Owen, thank you so much for joining us on the minefield. Thanks for having me here. Um, so look, you you've heard Walid and I, I guess, try to come to grips with some of the some of the more pertinent moral questions. That you may disagree that these are questions that ought to have been asked sort of early on in the process, or you may agree that they kind of grow in pertinence, they grow in pressingness as the pandemic progresses. Let's let's go back to, I think, the original question that Walid posed which is for those nations that are now enjoying a a wide degree or a high degree of vaccination coverage, what are the moral obligations that are incumbent upon those wealthy nations in the face of an increasingly pressing demand for an effective booster campaign? Um, Should we be lining up or is it incumbent upon us to take a principled stand and to wait until something like equity is achieved through other parts of the world?
2: Uh, thanks so I mean I, I heard that yeah earlier conversation and I guess I'm more with uh, will lead on on the general uh, primacy of equity you um, can say briefly about why I, I agree you know as you've both, I think, pointed out that there is this um, legitimate, you know, prioritization a country will take and citizens will take actually for their own country, um, you know, of, of their national interests. You know, we have a global system of nation states, not a world government, and the primary way we discharge our obligations um, of justice is uh, via provision of uh, of welfare and security and so forth towards our co nationals. And so, you know, there, there is a, a good sense of justification for, you know, spending resources and prioritizing policy for domestic interests first. Um, but that's not an unlimited blank check, right? Um, it's not that, oh, well, you know, you can spend all of your resources on domestic need first. And then if there's any leftover after you've completely satisfied domestic need, then, then you can give some scraps to the world. I don't think that's a fair mm. balance. So yeah, there is this question of what the appropriate balance. There's no formula of the appropriate balance. Um, with boosters, though, uh, and I've I've, I've written in defense of this in the past, I do think that the balance tilts very heavily in favor of equity. So we do have, you know, as you pointed out, um, especially when it comes to lower-income lower countries, um, vast under-vaccination rates, particularly in the continent of Africa. Many countries, um, lower-income countries, having uh, less than 10% coverage rates, at least uh, as of a month ago. Um, and other countries, you mentioned that I'm in Singapore, we have, you know, well over 90% uh, vaccination rates, right? And that, that, that kind of difference is just, it's just staggering. And I think, you know, it's, uh, it's past the point where the level of protection from boosters, which is, you know, real, but I would call it marginal compared to the initial dosage, um, because it is much less protective than the initial dosage, because initial dosage still remains um, effective against disease and particularly against severe disease, because of the big difference and the big difference in uh, vaccine coverage that, uh, yeah, countries really should be prioritizing equitable distribution around the world.
1: And yet... I've spoken to a few epidemiologists just in the course of my job interviewing them. And especially with the arrival of Omicron, they are all saying to me, boosters are really, really important. So not that, look, the benefit you might get is marginal, et cetera, et cetera. It's more that especially with this new variant and the possibility that we it may evade vaccines to some extent, we don't know what. Um, You need as much immunity as you can possibly get. That's the most responsible thing to do, especially for limiting the spread. Uh, And so the impression I get is it would be an ethical failure on the part of us as individuals not to be going out and getting our booster shots.
2: Okay. So I think it's very important to distinguish the individual question. Of whether I should get a booster when offered by my own government, from the question, the policy question of whether countries should secure a supply of vaccines mm-hmm. in order to vaccinate, in order to embark on a booster campaign, and I think you actually get very different answers to these two questions. So I've, I've just given some reasons at the policy level, at the, at the national level, and also you can talk about pharmaceutical companies' level, um, why you know these booster campaigns are ill-advised. But I think that's different from what you've alluded to. And I think in the earlier chat, you were talking about returning to this question. Maybe we can just return to it now. Uh, but whether does that mean that the individual should decline to get a booster because of these equity issues? So I'll, I'll just say I think that even though I, I've opposed large-scale you know, government-run uh, booster campaigns, at least at the population level, um, I, I don't think that gives a good reason for individuals to decline a booster when offered. And maybe you're going to allude to this. I think you, you already had some uh, hints about why this would be the case. But you mentioned earlier all these bilateral deals. You mentioned earlier these national-level procurements. And essentially, governments are procuring large quantities of vaccine, uh, not based on individual demand and individual purchasing or, or, or I should say, um, requests, but based on a policy decision that we want to, you know, uh, offer boosters to everyone in our country, right? Who's who's eligible for the for the booster. And so they, the countries secure it and already have secured actually. Um, and the damage has been done, have secured boosters um, through purchase orders for their populations. You know, The U.S. explicitly exercised its options um, for uh, mRNA vaccines in order to um, vaccinate both children and, and provide boosters, uh, and other countries have done similar. So if you as an individual say, well, I care about glo- global equity, so I'm going to refuse my booster, that, that, that dose is not being shipped off to a lower income country. You know, first of all, logistically, you know, doses expire and transit's expensive and mm. logistically that'd be challenging. But even if we're logistically not challenging, that's actually not what's going to happen. Because governments are going to keep those doses, you know, on ice until they are able to vaccinate and uh, fulfill their population. Because we know, And we know this because we know that with, on the face of vaccine hesitancy uh, with initial doses, countries did not say, okay, the U.S. looks at, you know, 56 or whatever percent uptake rate and say, okay, well, we'll give the rest to lower income countries. The U.S. did not do that. I don't think any country took excess from vaccine hesitancy and donated it. Mm. And the same thing is going to be true for boosters. So unfortunately, it's not going to help anyone, so to speak. And indeed, because there is a marginal benefit, uh, and I think it is a real benefit, um, at first I was uncertain, but now I think the evidence is in, um, you are indeed setting back your own interests, but also maybe more importantly, to the extent that boosters probably have a protective effect against infecting others, you are to some extent exposing others to greater harm than uh, than would be otherwise possible by refusing a booster.
1: So I passed the Schaefer test. I'm okay. Um, and it sounds like really the argument you're making is a similar one to, we used to the one we used to make as kids. I remember when I was a kid and you didn't want to finish your dinner and your parents would say, finish your dinner, there are people starving in other parts of the world. And the kid would always yeah. respond, yes, but me finishing my dinner doesn't help them. <laughs> or you yeah. would say, please send my food to them, which of course is not going to happen.
2: I think with the food thing, it's actually a little different, I, I will say. Because with food, it's not countries making mass purchases. And it is the case that, you know, food makers and importers, they do respond to individual demand, at least, you know, over an individual's lifetime. So actually, I'm a little more sympathetic, I'll admit. I'm more sympathetic to the, the kind of dinner table argument than I am to the booster argument. But I'll leave that there.
1: So. Right, because that's a more of a market mechanism, yeah. supply and demand. Although the vaccination thing is a market mechanism too. It's just that the purchases in the market are big and clunky rather than, yeah. than individuals. Um, so, if we're comfortable on individuals taking booster shots, even if not on government procurement of those booster shots, what do we make of the original approach that that governments took to vaccination? So, I mean, I, I don't mean to sound like I'm finding Scott wholly unpersuasive here. I actually find what Scott's been saying about national leaders in particular circumstances that are that are not that are forced upon them that have a job to do with respect to their national constituencies, whose job is to act in the national interest, whose degrees of freedom are limited, I suppose. You know, the scope of their possible action is limited, such that they really must behave in a way that that responds to and prioritises their own populations. That they had to make decisions and that they are, at least to some degree, ethically defensible, that they would do these things, you know, Buy a range of vaccines they can't possibly use all of them uh, in the process displace poorer nations from being able to buy or get access to those to those vaccines um, how much sympathy do you have for that situation
0: and sorry at the at the risk of kind of speaking for myself for a moment here <laughs> Sorry, uh, no no, no, no you're, you're fine i mean the other thing that i think we do need to keep in mind and and i really am trying to be as charitable as possible without being without tipping over into being unjust we do have to keep in mind that when many of these deliberations, these negotiations for access to vaccines were taking place, the timeline of vaccine delivery and the number of vaccines that would be available, I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong, Owen, but that was still very much up in the air. So I, I guess it, I, I find it, again, reasonable that nations maybe went overboard in trying to secure, say, two or three lines of possible vaccine supply. And while I think it's noxious to overtly do such things, knowing that one is doing so at the expense of others who have just as equal, just as much of a legitimate uh, moral human claim on access to those vaccines, I, I guess when there's so many factors that are uncertain, it does make a degree of sense that nation states went, say, a little bit overboard to try to guarantee the health, the well-being, the safety, the security of their population.
2: I mean, thanks, thanks. for bringing up the point of uncertainty. I think that is really important. And I, and I meant to bring this up in relation to, to Omicron and boosters, and because, for example, right now we are in a state of massive uncertainty relating to Omicron. Right? We said, oh well, we need boosters to combat Omicron. Honestly, we have very little uh, knowledge of the extent to which, for example, Omicron is uh, more deadly than uh, or less deadly than Delta or other variants. Um, on the extent to which the magnitude, you know, we can speculate the boosters would help, but the magnitude is completely uncertain. And, and that's OK. That, that's bad because then it makes it difficult how to direct policy. But as you're right, that when you go back in time to, you know, early uh, 2020, there's even more uncertainty right? because back then, you know, we didn't even know if any vaccines would work. Hmm. Right. And and so part of the reason you're right, that the countries ended up with, you know, Canada, I think, had like nine times as many doses as needed by 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 procurement. And those numbers looked really bad. The defense was, look, we don't know if any of these are going to work. So you have to hedge. You have to have this wide portfolio and and hope that at least one one uh, is successful. Now, as it turns out, um, it was a comparatively easy virus to vaccinate against. We were very fortunate in that regard. But you could say, well, look, you didn't know that when you made all these bilateral deals. That's true. Um, and like I said earlier, I, I don't I agree that you know there's some defensibility to, to national priority and that it includes in conditions of extreme uncertainty about vaccination effectiveness um, in you know, early mid-2020. That having been said, there's also uh, extreme uncertainty about the degree of relative uh, distribution and uh, and the ability of lower-middle-income middle countries to procure on their own given these bilateral deals. So, so the uncertainty, you know, as in, in so, in so far as some countries are more vulnerable, potentially more vulnerable to severe harm if there were a COVID-19 outbreak, um, you are, in a sense, really disadvantaging those countries even more in conditions of uncertainty early on in the pandemic by taking a purely nationalistic approach, which is what most countries did. Hmm. So again, I don't think this means, okay, every country should be giving 100% of their um, you know, funding to COVAX. I think you know, that, that, that wouldn't have been a reasonable ask. But the degree, the, the very, the, it was vastly underfunded. COVAX was vastly underfunded. And bilateral deals were vastly overrepresented. And part of the problem was that this, these contracts that were formed then created actually barriers later on to redistribution because some of the contracts had clauses about being unable to be, um, for countries to redistribute their supply because of essentially liability concerns. And pharmaceutical companies bear responsibility for insisting on those clauses when you know, um, it wasn't really necessary given, uh, given the actual revenue they were getting from these vaccines.
1: This is The Mind if you've just joined us on the radio. Uh, we'll Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Owen Schaefer is our guest for this week, Assistant Professor at the Centre for Biomedical Ethics at the Yonglu Lin School of Medicine at the National University of Singapore. So, Owen... There's an argument that goes, well, these vaccines were really only possible because of massive investment from certain countries, government money, um, for all Boris Johnson's sort of claims that capitalist greed has developed or delivered these vaccines for us. Huge amounts of government investment went in there. We we have to give credit to Donald Trump for um, what was it called? Operation Warp Speed or whatever it was. Yeah. The amount of money that he pumped in. So it is the taxpayers of these nations and the coffers of those nations that have in a sense, saved the world through these vaccines. And so arguably they have some kind of right to first priority and perhaps even to a a greater, like a a disproportionate, say, in what vaccines go where, which is certainly, I mean, really how it played out in practice, right? Even a, a country like Canada, it's its vaccine rollout really took off once the United States said, okay, you can have some vaccine. (laughs) So it's the benefit of sharing a border with the United States, I guess, um, and the United States having an interest in you becoming vaccinated. So there's that argument. But uh, the flip side of that argument, or the counter argument is, you had nations like South Africa and Botswana saying, look, if you won't give us vaccination, let us make it. But in order for us to make it, we need an intellectual property waiver Uh, Can we have one, please? And the US say that's a good idea, and the UK and the EU say no. And as a result, you have these nations that are now unable to receive any vaccine, but also unable to, to develop any of it themselves or source it in any other way that would violate intellectual property laws. Is there a need? Is the ethical argument now over as to what the right thing to do here is? on access to uh, also overriding the intellectual property constraints of vaccine distribution.
0: Oh, and if I can just sort of, before you answer, I'm really eager to hear what you have to say. This is, in fact, one of the main reasons we wanted to have you on the show is for you to answer precisely this question. But there is just one, I guess, moral category that, that I wonder shouldn't be considered in this mix. Um, it is possible, I think, and it's even worthwhile maybe uh, to think in terms of, of global public goods there's a very strong argument that vaccines can't be considered a global public good because for something to be a global public good, it can't be subject to scarcity. It must be something that is by its nature uh, available to, accessible to all. I think it's right to think that there's, there's certain constraints, there's certain conditions of scarcity that determine or that influence the way that we think about vaccine distribution. However, knowledge the knowledge of vaccine development, uh, and not least because it's come through the investment of substantial public funds, I think that knowledge can in fact be considered say, a global public good. It's something that can be shared without, without any party being worse off as the result of it. And I'm wondering if that, if that differentiation between vaccines versus the knowledge of how to produce those vaccines, is that a, a, an ethically salient category uh, for the way that we ought to think about this?
2: Thanks. Well, okay. There's three different topics there uh, to, to touch on. Uh, okay. I'll, I'll try to do justice to all three of them. Starting with the first one on, on you know, do countries that contributed financially uh, to the research and development of, of vaccines, do they get to, do they have some moral right to be a little bit ahead in the queue? Um, this is a question that hasn't been directly addressed in the literature or in much international discussion. Interestingly, there was, I think, interesting Sanofi, which didn't end up having a winning the vaccine, did kind of at one point. The CEO said, "Oh yeah, we'll give some some little extra preference to those who funded us," and this was a huge backlash. And you know, that there was never spoken of again. Uh, this was like uh, mid 2020 or something like that. Um, but it, no one ever said that again. But what replaced it was just ability to pay. That's what dominated bilateral deals, and and nobody seemed to be. I mean, some people do, but it wasn't massive. Kind of backlash against this. Everyone kind of accepted as you do that. This is how countries operate. I do actually think and I have a paper in the pipeline that um, providing funding does give you some priority um, when it comes to right to uh, just a bit of resources. Um, It's not infinite. It's not complete. It doesn't mean you can completely, you know, have. Uh, do whatever you want with your your, your procurement abilities, but I, th- I agree that it does. If you're looking at a just distribution, there is some reason to give those who pr- helped produce or develop a vaccine some priority. But that's not the magnitude of that is not enough to justify the degree of bilateral deals that were formulated. That were formulated. Uh, that's my view on that. Um, on intellectual property, this has been a huge topic, um, especially you know, in the international uh, debate over you know what can be done, what should have been done. Maybe a year ago, IP waivers. It's it's complicated, you know. I'm I'm very sympathetic to the idea that well, look, there's no pharmaceutical pharmaceutical companies lack this sort of moral right to an IP insofar as there's, for example, contributions that directly through funding like Warp Speed or indirectly. Pfizer didn't actually take um, Warp Speed money, but um, there's indirect funding through you know years of build up and taxpayer support, uh, regulatory apparatus, and so forth. But and so I don't I don't really buy that. Oh, there's this inherent moral right to the fruits of you know their um of of their innovation in that sense. But there is a sense in which, um, if you were to waive IP, maybe you could get greater production today. Maybe you could, you know, for, especially for AstraZeneca, which didn't end up surprisingly waiving its IP rights. Maybe you could get more vaccines produced today, and lots of LMICs. The problem is you disincentivize pharmaceutical companies to be so aggressive in the next wave, or even with, say, Omicron, with developing, say, an Omicron-specific variant, if if a, a, a vaccine. If, you know, you say, well, we're going to waive the uh, the patent rights and they expect you'll do the same thing for Omicron vaccine, that substantially reduces their you know, risky investment uh, on vaccine R&D. And if we think that the unprecedented global development of vaccines, you know, which has never been produced at this rate in human history, is something we want to replicate for Omicron or for disease X you know, future pandemic, then we need to have some degree of, uh, of intellectual property right, uh, protection or we need to completely reformulate the pipeline for development, which is possible, but risky in of itself, because it might end up with something that's less efficient uh, than the current approach. Um, so I think there is trade-offs there. But I will say that ultimately, I think it doesn't come down to IP. I think that in, because Moderna said it would enforce its IP, but nobody was producing Moderna vaccines other than those that Murder had contracted with, because as has been pointed out, there needs to be, in addition to IP waivers, proactive um, uh, tech transfer by pharmaceutical mm. companies and support from manufacturers, uh, it's only really going to work. You're going rogue and just doing it on your own with mRNA vaccines is not really viable. So it needs to be actually pharmaceutical companies stepping up, um, and that's costly to them. And, yeah, so, it's, so and it's difficult. You can just pass a law. It's very difficult to just compel them to do so. Possible, but very difficult uh, compared with IP waiver, which you know, is technically straightforward, even
1: if controversial. But that's why I think I disagree with you slightly in the distinction you draw, Um, sorry, or the distinction you don't draw between the companies that received Warp Speed funding and the ones that don't or didn't. So your argument, as I understand it, is they may not have received that funding, but they've got a build-up of um, investment, public investment over time that means they're now in a position to do the research um, that allows the development of the vaccine, and so they shouldn't really be considered distinct. I just wonder how far you can go down that road, because by that, I mean, any economic activity really owes a debt of gratitude to or more than gratitude, um, perhaps even financial debt to public investment over time. I mean, this argument you often hear in, you know, US politics that, well, um, you might be a company that's creating all this stuff, but the roads that you drive on in order to, you know, ship your stuff around or whatever, that's all publicly funded, et cetera. Um, And that's all true. But I would have thought the The reparation for that is in the form of taxation. We can have an argument about whether or not the tax regime is right, but it, I feel like it is fundamentally different, isn't it, from being funded directly to produce a particular product. Like at that point, I think the public can say, sorry, we own some of this product directly because...
2: yeah. I, fair, fair enough. I, I was I was that difference too much. And I think you're right. There is a difference. Nevertheless, um, I do think that in general, right, uh, the kind of the general social, indirect social support for you know private generation of private profits, that is justification not just for taxation, but a, a justification for direct control when in, in situations of emergency, like we're talking about now, more generally thinking about the intellectual property regime, you know, it, it, generally it's not justified based on this, oh, you know, we have this right to our, our you know ideas. It's actually generally justified on utilitarian grounds that, look, you know, the recognition of intellectual property rights is necessary to incentivize innovation. This is actually in the U.S. Constitution. Right? It has this, yeah. you know, consequential justification right in there. It's, it's surprising, but it's there. It's not where the rest of it is very rights-based. Um, and I think that's that's telling. Um, that when it comes to intellectual property, because it is different from actual physical property, um, fundamentally different, it's not afforded the same sort of, of protections and the protections are, are essentially more more utilitarian or consequentialist than maybe with physical property where there is something, you know, there is some more um, stronger rights to the the objects that you have in your possession. So I think there is a difference there.
1: And, and I agree with that justification, by the way, that you don't want to kill innovation. Um, I think that's right. But I also think that's where the difference between having direct funding and not from the public really does come into its own because it's not simply a matter of, well, you you had the drive, the creative drive in you to make this innovation. Well, no, you are given really, really substantial support and even direction to do so. The, the, the question that then I come to is if we accept the need for intellectual property rights in order to protect... The, the innovative drive of companies is there a point at which that justification runs out like is there a, is there a limit to that in the context of a pandemic where even if you were to waiver certain intellectual property rights however effective that might end up being you are making so much money out of this that it would have been worth your while anyway
2: yeah, obviously, there's a balance and there's a point, there's a tipping point. T- typically, intellectual property law, it's not unlimited. You know, there are statutes of limitations on on, on patents. Uh, and, and with the, you know, in state of emergency, you might say because sales are just unprecedented for these vaccines, that that statute of limitations should be much more brief. Some people have floated a year. Um, other people have floated the opposite. They said, well, look, um, we should uh, waive, waive intellectual property rights until the point at which it's no longer a global emergency uh, or no longer a global pandemic, right? And then after that, you can have your long-term, you know, long-term booster process over the next 20 years for rich countries that want to afford them. Um, and that, that, those, those are different answers to this kind of puzzle of how to balance these different considerations. But yeah, it's a difficulty with planning when you have this big risk that if you tip the balance too high more in favor, if you tip the balance against innovation too greatly, the big risk is that you don't end up with uh, rapid va- uh, development of vaccines at all. That, that's this huge risk. And arguably that, that you if you fail to develop an, an, an innovative vaccine, say for disease X, that might be even worse than COVID-19, that arguably is a greater risk than inequitable distribution. That might be a controversial mm. point, but I oh, think that, uh, that argument could be made. I don't think it
1: is controversial. I think it's... Yeah. Sorry, Scott. I really have crowded you out and apologize. No, this has been wonderful. We're a bit like a wealthy nation trying to get hold of vaccine doses. Yeah, <laughs> that's
0: true. Um, I would just say that I, I do think, and maybe this comes down more to an issue of aesthetics than democratic realpolitik or the, the inherent logic of market-driven mechanisms. But it does strike me that there does come a point and pharmace- pharmaceutical companies as global citizens, nonetheless, can both acknowledge this as say Merck has, and can do something meaningful in this direction there, there is a point at which pharmaceutical companies can say it is not just unseemly, but it's distasteful to be profiting needlessly off the back of a mounting emergency. In the same way, for instance, that it would be unseemly, for instance, in the midst of a, of a, a tremendous housing shortage or housing affordability shortage for certain families or persons or investors to continue to try to seek to make... A uh, handover fist profit through the procurement of more and more properties in order to sell them at exorbitant prices, and I do think there is something about that, almost that language of unseemliness, that language even of moral disgust that we feel in the face of certain things that could even give rise to various forms of global shaming. Um, that, that that may well be a kind of a nice, almost organic, necessary corrective to some of the more wanton forms of profit making. But that's that's adding. Uh, an additional element to the conversation that's already been so beautifully uh, well-rounded as it stands.
2: Well, thanks. I think it's an important element. Uh, sorry if there's any background noise. It's getting to be that hour. Um, no, that's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Some colleagues and I did write a paper on the obligations of pharmaceutical companies in a pandemic, precisely because of what you've uh, the concerns you've just raised. And it hasn't been something that's been discussed as much as talking about what countries should do. But I, I think you're right. You know, there is this point at which profits become. Unseemly is one way of putting it. Unjust is another, and, and the the incentive argument, interestingly, I just put forward that works for why countries should respect IP. It doesn't work for why pharmaceutical companies should make demands or lobby for protection of their own IP rights. Mm. Because internal to their own, you know, development, they could say, look, right, we, we, we find a sufficient profit at this point, and at that, and then we're going to be you know more egalitarian after that. You know, they, they could make you know, shareholders or you know owners or CEOs they could make decisions at that level, but they don't. They instead act quite self-interestedly, and oftentimes we kind of give them a past. Oh, it's a company. We don't expect them. They're just looking after profit. But why should we expect companies to just be self-interested and individuals to be, you know, moral? Companies are made up of individuals, and those individuals collectively have moral obligations. So yeah, I agree that pharmaceutical companies, yeah, you know, they, they should be limited, into you know, by their own you know, lights about the extent to which they can profiteer off of um, off of these uh, systems. And, and essentially, you know, the Incentive structure gets to the point where, OK, they need to protect their IP to the point at which it would become unprofitable to produce a vaccine. Yeah, that's going to be their bar because, you know, th- then they couldn't even sustain themselves. But if you look at, so for example, pharmaceutical companies aggressively pers- uh, pushing booster campaigns, right, they weren't looking after, you know, the greater uh, public good of, you know, of vaccine coverage. They were looking at maximizing their profits to secure higher um, higher purchase orders um, from wealthy countries, uh, so yeah, and there wasn't, and there hasn't been much among vaccine maker manufacturers until very recently, I would, I should say, in actually trying to support global supply. Now I, I will say this year and next year we're seeing more interest in developing manufacturing capability in lower middle income countries, and that is actually really important. And I think that you know eventually there has been some international pressure to do so. And th- for the next pandemic, for disease X, that's what we really need. We need greater investment in manufacturing capabilities around the world. So you don't, even if we do predict countries will act self-interest. The, at least with the spread of, of manufacturing, you know, there's more ability, as India did, for example, to retain doses um, during the time of a crisis, uh, irrespective of the international community's ability to, say, support India's supply.
1: It's almost like we need to specify a return on investment in these sorts of <laughs> situations. <true>. But, <laughs> yeah, at the same time, what they're producing is so indispensable that an oversized profit seems to be just reward, you know. It's a... I don't know. Look, we're out of time. I'm sorry about that, Owen. But um, it's been so great to speak to you about this. It's one of those situations, Scott, where it feels like we can bowl any delivery we like and he'll dispatch it to the boundary. Owen <laughs> won't even understand that reference. <laughs> it's a cricket thing, Owen. Uh, you'll find okay. something on YouTube, I'm sure. Thank you very much for joining us. It's been great to speak to you about it.
2: Thank you. Great chat. Great Thanks for having me.
1: Owen Schaefer, Assistant Professor at the Centre for Biomedical Ethics at the Yong Lu Lin School of Medicine at the National University of Singapore, our guest for this week's show. We will see you next week. With any luck.
2: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more
0: great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.